Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And you gave me champagne on my first day of life, which I think I says a lot not, about I me. I would never do such a thing. <laughs> did I really? Yeah. In a spoon? Yeah, oh, I think on your well, finger. I was celebrating you. I know. Born. I was born. It was great. Yeah. You're listening to Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, based on the book Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, a collection of writing by 52 women on what feminism means to them. I'm Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, journalist, and very, very proud feminist. I'm also the curator of this book and the presenter of the podcast. During this series, I'm going to be talking to a few of the amazing contributors who've written our book to find out how they found their feminism and some of the lies that they've been told about what it means to be a woman. My guest today is writer Helen Fielding. Helen is probably best known as the author of the 1996 novel Bridget Jones's Diary, which, alongside its sequel, sold over 15 million copies in 40 countries and was named one of the 10 novels that defined the 20th century. In a 2004 poll, Helen was named the 29th most influential person in British culture, and in December 2016, Women's Hour included Bridget Jones as one of the seven women who had most influenced British female culture over the last seven decades. Helen also co-wrote the three Bridget Jones films and in 2016 published Bridget Jones's Baby. We're beyond excited that Bridget has made a rare comeback to drunkenly explore her thoughts on feminism in Feminists Don't Wear Pink, and even more excited that she's here today for her global podcast debut. My first question is just to talk a bit about how you saw feminism when you were growing up, and did anyone ever talk to you about it? Was it a thing that was in your life or that your mum ever talked about, or was it just not talked about at all? No, feminism wasn't really a thing in Yorkshire at that time. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in a textile town on the outskirts of Leeds. Um, my mum was a domestic science teacher wow. um, and stopped working when she had kids. My dad worked as a manager in the textile mill. Um, and it wasn't a thing. Um, but I went to a girls' school and I suppose the girls' school was run by what Bridget's uncle Geoffrey would call tragic barren spinsters. <laughs> they were all people whose fiancés had died in the war. Um, so in a sense, it was a very female-led community. Yeah. And, you know, the mills were very... Um, women worked really hard yeah. alongside men. There wasn't any question of women sitting at home being Betty Crocker because right. they were too poor. 
Um, but nobody made a... It wasn't a, it, a thing in anyone's consciousness. It wasn't a statement. And were you, when you kind of thought about being a grown-up, did you think about working or did you think about getting married and having kids? Um, I always wanted to be a writer. And I, I think I sort of wanted to go somewhere else yeah. that wasn't there. Um, and I knew that the answer to that was working. And I suppose I had three very beautiful friends at school, gorgeous, gorgeous girls. And we were all sort of naughty and hang out together. And mm, it was interesting the ways people went because some of them did get married, yeah. married someone gorgeous in the town and then stayed in that. And um, you you really had to work to get to go somewhere else. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, and what about university? Did you think about feminism ever then or not really? I think um, it sort of went without saying. Yeah. So I wouldn't have made a thing about being a feminist because at that time and certainly when Bridget was being written... Being a feminist was sort of separate. It was something that you were, were to aspire to. Yes. Another thing you were supposed to be good at, like <laughs> sort of cooking and being independent and being a businesswoman and perhaps a Buddhist and yeah, a exercising, sensation and exercising. And, and I certainly felt at that time that it was appropriated by solemn intellectuals. Yeah. Um, and only they really knew how to do it. And I always had a slight feeling that they were going to tell me off. Yeah. Um, whereas most of the people that I knew were sort of struggling just to kind of pull off having a job and a flat and a boyfriend maybe and would you ever have kids and um, just sort of manage without pissing anyone off too much. Um, and so I think what's really good now is that things have completely moved on from that separation so we we are talking about almost first world, third world in this yeah. sense, in that, you know, most of the women in the world are struggling with trying to avoid being beaten, raped or mutilated, you know, <laughs> and we're talking on a different level. But I do think that now being a feminist is, is very inclusive. Yeah, and I think for me what's nice about feminism in particular compared to like I don't know people that work for the environment or work for poverty or anything is I quite like that it it's a movement that links like me worrying about maybe being paid a tiny bit less than a, another man who's also being paid a lot and enough to live and it also reaches to child marriage and FGM and you know it kind of links them all and says they're all important which I quite like mm-hmm What's funny about what you said about intellectuals is one of the funniest moments or kind of weirdest moments for me throughout the whole of university was, by the way, for the podcast listeners who don't know, Helen is my godmother, mm-hmm. which is very nice. And she's my been an incredible... And it's all down to me that she's turned out so well. It is. And you gave me champagne on my first day of life, which I think I says a lot not, about I me. I would never do such a thing. <laughs> Did I really? Yeah. In a spoon? Yeah, I think on your oh, finger. You celebrating your born. I was born, it was great. Yeah. Um, but so I obviously grew up reading Bridget and loving Bridget and knowing you and loving you. And then I took a, 
I studied feminism at university and took a class on kind of modern day feminism and every single essay was about Bridget Jones and my whole class of kind of really geeky, you know, righteous feminist students was reading Bridget Jones and we were talking about it and all these intellectual academic like doctors were kind of taking tiny quotes from you and all this thing about like you know Helen or like Fielding it's very <laughs> mysterious in how she addresses Bridget's feminism and blah blah and um it was just so funny because I hilarious yeah did you tell them that I was your godmother no I, Why not? Just, I was because then because I was I don't know I was just scared and oh. embarrassed but I was very happy about it all. You weren't ashamed of me for not being feminist enough. No, and it wasn't... A lot of it was saying that Bridget is kind of this incredible post-feminism icon and that a lot... It was all very complicated. But I'm really interested in how you saw Bridget in relation to feminism when you were writing it. Well, the truth is it was written pretty unselfconsciously mm. because I'd written my first book, um, which was set in a refugee camp, and nobody was really buying the book and I didn't have any money and I think I'd just been fired from the Sunday Times for insisting on my copy not being changed <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was just really writing a column anonymously to to pay the rent yeah um, and so what I was doing because I didn't know anyone was really going to read it or pay attention it freed me up to be very honest about the things you wouldn't necessarily write if you thought anyone was going to read it mm. Um, and I think what it threw up was really, essentially, it's the gap between how people feel they're expected to be and how they really are. Yeah. So the things that Bridget was struggling with were things you wouldn't really speak about, which was the sense that because she hadn't got married and she was in her 30s, she was Miss Havisham, mm. a, a tragic spinster, and she was going to end up dying alone and being eaten by a dog. Um, the thing that is really shocking to me is really when you asked me to write something for your book and then and also I've been working on doing the musical of Bridget looking back at it now I couldn't have written that book now I mean Bridget just got used to the fact that if you had a job then your boss would stare freely at your breasts forget your name and make you wear a slutty dress to make an idiotic speech and those guys, Mr. Fitzherbert or Tits Pervert, Richard Finch, <laughs> they would have been fired. Yeah. They couldn't do that now. Um, and she just, that was what you had to put up with. And I think that is what we were studying. We were kind of, the, these, my teachers were really looking at Bridget as this example of someone dealing with all the like patriarchy and sexism of the times. And even that is in the way that she feels she should be married. You know, that's kind of a result of everything. Um, and sort of, they were saying she's an example of someone that, like, overcame it and used it and, you know, got around it in some ways. Um, but what? how... I mean, talk a bit about your piece, because it's so amazing. And um, I think what, well, when I, think... I when I asked you to do it, apart from godmotherly guilt, <laughs> <laughs> what was it that made you actually want to do it? Um... Well, I was quite flattered to be asked, to be honest. Um, and, I, no, I thought it was quite interesting to write something as Bridget. And it was really interesting looking back at the book mm. and what I'd actually said at the time. Because there was one scene where she was Bridget was in the bar with um, Shazza and Jude, her friends, 
and Shazza was ranting on about feminism and then Bridget went, shh, there's nothing so unattractive to a man as strident feminism. <laughs> and I really got, got it in the neck for that line. But I always maintained it was a multi-layered ironic joke. Yeah. Um, but also I think... I mean, I often get that problem because often a lot of men aren't attracted to me because of my strident feminism, but they should be. They should be attracted yeah. by your strident So maybe that's what she was saying. <laughs> but I think what she was actually doing was being a bit more realistic than perhaps um, an academic feminist would yeah. be because she was trying to figure out how, how do you do it all? How do you deal with the fact that you actually do like having sex and you do fall in love with people and you do want to be with the and, and you maybe wanna... have kids but you also want to be respected and be able to earn your own living and not get married age 22 without Uncle Jeffrey saying why aren't you married and yeah. what's wrong with you and so she was she was more in the trenches as far as Bridget, you, you can't really say she was in the trenches she was a she publicist was. <laughs> she wasn't, <laughs> wasn't ploughing fields or or working in a mill or something or but um yeah and um Sharon Shazza her friend was the one that was sort of taking the strong position and saying you know in years to come men will just be kept in kennels as pets and we won't put up with any of their effritage and we won't need to um and I think it's really interesting what has happened since then and particularly in the last couple of years mm. Um, and your piece is very much like in response to Me Too and Time's Up. Before we talk about it more, do you want to read a bit? Yeah, um, I'll read that little bit. This is Bridget. Just having a little nightcap and looking back through old diaries from 1996. The strident feminist thing was a multi-layered ironic joke. <laughs> that time I felt like a feminist, in inverted commas, was another intimidating thing you were supposed to be along with thin, in a relationship, a mother running your own business and gliding smoothly from person to person at parties like Tina Brown. Solemn feminists like Camille Paglia and Jermaine Greer seem to be always telling us off for being less feminist than them and for trying to combine some sort of economic independence with the reality of finding men attractive and wanting to love and be loved, keep a job, pay the rent and just sort of manage without pissing everybody off too much to continue. But it was also the era of Susan Faludi's marvellous treatise Backlash, where, even though I never actually read it, but <laughs> epic feminists fail, Mark Darcy did, Susan Faludi flagged up that our faltering steps towards gender equality were being stamped upon by movies like Fatal Attraction and that hideous quote from Newsweek magazine saying a woman over the age of 40 was statistically more likely to be killed by a terrorist than find a husband. <laughs> and look at my mother's dread at turkey curry buffet. Uncle Jeffrey and even smug married couples my own age were still saying, why aren't you married and tick-tock when I was only 32? It was as if I was once some freakish Miss Havisham figure who was going to end up dying alone and be found three weeks later half-eaten by an Alsatian, so much so that I felt moved to say it's because actually underneath my clothes my entire body is covered with scales because that's what they actually suspected or made me feel like. But I think the interesting thing now... About me too, and about this is Helen again. Oh, this is me. <laughs> um, Bridget then gets drunk later in the piece it's and goes so a bit off the good. reservation. It's, but also, you've just sorry. I just need to compliment you a bit. Yeah, I like you've just so perfectly summed up everything that I wanted this book to be because 
I think something I've really struggled with feminism is so many of my natural instincts you feel like contradict these things that you're meant to be and then you just feel more shame about, mm. you know, the fact that I do often want a boyfriend and I do often go to parties and feel I should shut up about feminism because it makes me unattractive. And then you think, oh, God, if I ruined it and, you know, I feel so guilty. And, you know, if anything, feminism is meant to be that women just shouldn't feel guilty about any of this stuff anymore. Yeah, I think so. And I think... I think it, it was quite shocking to me when Bridget came out that there was such an attack on it, really, and saying, oh, she, you know, she's pathetic and she just wants a man. And that really wasn't true. Yeah. What she was being was honest and vulnerable and funny, to be honest. And um, also, it's in the Bridget books, women are incredibly supportive to each other and they process stuff that goes on with Mm. them a huge amount. And that's a real strength with women. Yeah. I remember once um, when I was with... um, Years ago, my boyfriend went out for an evening with his very old friend who had just split up with his wife of 15 years. And they came back and I said, so what happened? And he said... Oh, I don't know. We didn't talk about it. We just talked about baseball. And that's in what universe would that happen with a group of girls? It just wouldn't. So I think that thing of processing reality of what's going on and your failures and your humiliations and your sense of inadequacy is a great strength with women. So to criticise the fact that that was explored in a book, is that isn't very feminist, is it? But also the truth is, the other reaction it was met with was millions and millions of women saying, this is what my life is like. I know, but and I do so a, like to grumble. No, no, no. But as a result, those criticisms are basically criticisms of all women. Yes. And that's, I think it's part of the reason so many people do sometimes feel ostracised from feminism and feel like they're not good enough for it. Because all these feminists are writing articles saying this book that sums up your life is pathetic. Yes. It's quite wrong of them. Yeah. Wait, so you were talking about Me Too and Time's Up. Oh, yes. So, um, what I was going to say, and what I, in fact, did say in the piece, was that what is interesting about, I think, about Me Too, is it's not just what happens when someone takes your sexuality and attractiveness and exploits it. What's also interesting is what happens when... You are not considered attractive enough to be <laughs> to be exploited, um, and I actually I looked to um, the president of the United States to give us his take on that. Um, Nineteen ninety one in Esquire regarding the media. You know, it doesn't really matter what they write as long as you've got a young and beautiful piece of ass. 2005, the Miss USA beauty pageant. If you're looking for a rocket scientist, don't tune in tonight. But if you're looking for a really beautiful woman, you should watch. Oh, my God. April 2015, if Hillary Clinton can't satisfy her husband, what makes her think she can satisfy America? September 2015, about Carly Fiorina. Look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? A question which could be reasonably asked about Mr Trump himself. But um, that's... That's, you know, yeah. a world leader at the moment. Um, 
when I was living in America, I was quite friendly with all the Simpsons writers, and then one of them, Dana Gold, had um, a sort of darkly funny character, um, which was pushing this whole thing to its logical but dark conclusion, which was the rapist with the wandering eye. So <laughs> it was sort of, on the one hand, he was brutally exploiting this woman, and then he saw another one that he thought was prettier. <laughs> And I had an experience like this when I was about 14, when I was walking into town in the dark Yorkshire town where I lived. And I had long blonde hair and tight jeans. And at that time, I always thought people were following me. But this time, this guy actually was following me, and he grabbed hold of me. And then I turned around to look at him, and I had winged glasses and braces, and he took one look at me and ran off. Again, I was left with the feeling of on the one hand scared that I was going to be <laughs> attacked and then oh, <laughs> oh, oh but I'm not attractive enough and that was very confusing and I think you know that's the other side of it so we hear all about the you know the actresses yeah. that were exploited but then the other side of that is the horrible behavior towards women that these men don't find attractive and the dismissing of them and the lack of validation they're yeah. given and that they're not viable and it's really not good and that's the other side of the coin that has to be addressed I think. And this idea that in some ways a woman's outsides are representative of her insights. In a way that men's aren't and yeah. there is I mean the the oppressive stereotypes are all over the place and the oppressive stereotype of the past it woman yeah. which isn't matched by the man of the same age so in Hollywood male leads of 70 are playing opposite 30-year-olds and no one makes the story about that. Absolutely. But if if you get that dynamic with a man and a woman, which frankly does happen in life, then it's the subject of the whole film, like yeah. film stars don't die in Liverpool or The Mother. Yeah, and, that, and also is seen as kind of creepy and a bit sinister and yeah. there's something wrong with both of them. Yeah, and um, I think the truth is that Hollywood does it doesn't really reflect what's going on in the way that books do necessarily. Mm. It more dictates it. Mm. And I think we've got to really watch out at that and make sure that women are being presented in fiction, in art, in the way that they really are. And, yeah. And not it's not being dictated by studio heads. Did the Me Too and Time's Up movement make you kind of reflect on any of your experiences in a different way? Because you were unbelievably successful at a time when not that many young, I mean definitely not that many young blonde women from Yorkshire <laughs> were and I think I often think about what you must have been through during that time and how crazy it must have been Well it interestingly it wasn't at that time that it was difficult really because I had a certain amount of power then mm. and people were not going to muck about with me when I'd written that stuff Yeah, because they knew I might write another one and they'd be in it. <laughs> <laughs> but the time that I find extraordinary now when I look back on it, which was the times that I drew on when I wrote Bridget, was when I worked at the BBC and in mm. TV. And what I put up with, I remember I was a useless floor manager and so apologetic with the, the scenery guys. And I'd say, you know, only in your own time, and only if you want to, would you move that piece of scenery. And one of them once put his tongue in my ear and I just sort of accepted it. Yeah. I was just felt scornful of them. Yeah. I didn't feel particularly bothered. Um, but, you know, you just 
you just thought that's what you have to deal with it. Mm. And something you talk about really interestingly in the piece as well is how, because those things are just horrible and you should never have been through that and you should never have been told that you're meant to accept it. But there's also the other side, which is when it is a bit more consensual. Oh, yeah. And I think that makes it, that just blurs it all as well. Well, that is the thing. It's about it being consensual because, frankly, obviously Bridget had this boss, Daniel Cleaver, Hugh Grant, um, inseparable in many people's and minds. And Daniel Cleaver would have been the first to go in the Me Too movement. Well, I don't know, because, frankly, Bridget was harassing Daniel Cleaver and spending <laughs> all day sending him flirtatious messages and wandering past him in a very short skirt and, and things. And that's that's where it gets hard. People flirt and mm. people are attracted to each other and people get very bored at work. And, you know, it's irresistible sometimes. Mm. So... That's actually what my dad always says when I complain about not having a boyfriend, is he says, well, you only meet people at work and you only work with women. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. an interesting line for Richard to take. I'll take <laughs> up on that later. <laughs> Time's up, Richard. Time's up, Richard. But even now I feel confused about that. I have to unpick it. I know. How do you feel you relate to or fit into the feminist, the new kind of version of the feminist movement that is a bit, I hope, more inclusive and understandable for people that don't have a degree in it? Um, Well, I feel I fit into it much better than I did when I first wrote Bridget Jones. Mm. Um, When I was writing the Bridget piece for for your book, I did... um, I just did Google feminist clothing <laughs> and I came up with four, 24 million items wow. of feminist clothing, clothing with feminist statements on. Mm. Um, and I did find that they were everything. They were sort of angry and witty, self-mocking and ironic, which mm. wasn't true. And that, that's m- much more a sort of feminism that I feel I fit in with. Yeah. It's got a sense of humour. There were things like pro-choice, pro-feminism, pro-unicorns. Which is very <laughs> I do unicorns, but just because they're kind of pink. Yeah. And, and they're miraculous. Uh, mar- magical. Unicorns magical. are a real thing now. They're kind of the new Bridget Jones. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I like mermaids too. I like mermaids. I but think they're more. green, they're not pink. They could be pink. You could have pink hair. They could. You are raising an incredible daughter who I love Aww. very much. And is amazing what advice do you try and give her for going out in the world as a woman (laughs) you can't go out dressed like that (laughs) (laughs) um no it's really interesting bringing up a daughter I think I really try not to bring body image into it Mm. And and it's hard because I was brought up in a completely different generation. And I'm always wandering around saying I'm on a diet and I'm <laughs> going to lose half a stone, as I've been saying for a very long time. But I try not to make that a thing. Yeah. Um, Do you see her worrying about it from external things? Because that's the thing I find so hard is... I think social media is really hard. And I think, yeah, certain certain environments are hard mm. when that becomes... Mm-hmm. the main thing, what are you wearing and stuff. But also I want her to really enjoy her body and her mm. looks and being young and and not spend the whole time worrying and, and wishing that she was something else, a different shape or a different person. Mm. Um, and I think 
that's it's so important because I think when I was in my teens, I didn't think how long life is mm. and how there's all these different phases of being a woman. Because I think at that stage, it almost seemed like life stopped when you were 25 or yeah. 30. Because you probably <laughs> would get married and have kids and then nothing much else exciting would happen. Yeah. Um, but life has all these decades of which bring different things and the sort of teens and 20s when you're at your most fresh and you can wear lovely clothes and it's to be enjoyed I think and, yeah and to be proud of I can remember being really annoyed when I was in my 20s that people wouldn't take me seriously and they were always trying to sleep with me and flirt with me <laughs> and then when I was 40 I was like oh honestly why does everyone just want me for my mind <laughs> So you can spend every decade of your life wishing you were in a different one if you're not careful. Yeah. And you should enjoy being in the one you're in. Oh, I need that advice. Um, okay, this is the question that we ask every podcast. What do you think one lie that you've been told about what it means to be a woman is? Oh, I don't know. Oh, there's so many. No one ever said to me I couldn't wear pink. Um, <laughs> oh, what about there is nothing so unattractive to a man as strident feminism? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. I love that. I wonder who wrote that. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, or even if you didn't, we'd love to hear from you. So make sure you subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, published by Penguin Random House on the 4th of October 2018, is available to buy now via the link in the description of this episode. All of the royalties from each book sold go to the amazing UN organisation Girl Up, who is supporting girls across the world. For more information and to join our gang, please follow us on Instagram at, at @feminists. Thank you so much to Audio Boom for helping us get it out there and to the wonderful Pink Feminists who've joined us as guests. If you enjoyed this episode, we have some really fun feminist events coming up with even more of our contributors and we would love to have you. There's a link to our website where you can buy tickets in the description of this episode and I cannot wait to see you there. Wait, oh, we probably shouldn't shout out other people's podcasts. Oh, okay. <laughs> I listen to your podcast. Yes, good, good, very good. This plus one of my favourite modern inventions. <laughs> <laughs> I love them mm. so much. Although, do you ever put one on and then forget you put it on and then think you've got some weird skin growth no but i will now yeah yeah even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.